Please open with me to Genesis chapter 42. We're going to be looking at that chapter this morning. As we, uh, as I'm seeing, as I'm sure you are, the, the glimmers of the end of the forest, if you will, that we've been in, in Genesis. I hope that's a good connotation for you, not a bad connotation. And uh, as we, again, I want to encourage you to prepare your hearts, even for our next sermon series, which is in the book of Hebrews. I'm opening that book up and reading it over and over and over again. That would be a wonderful practice for you, too, to begin to prepare your heart. I thank you. We've all um, at least tangentially heard of the celebrity uh, chef in TV personality Anthony Bourdain. He had a tattoo on his arm that read in ancient Greek, I am certain of nothing. In an interview with Men's Journal in 2014, he was asked this question, how should a man handle regret? And this was his answer. Regret is something you've just got to live with. You can't drink it away. You can't run away from it. You can't trick yourself out of it. You've just got to own it. I've disappointed and hurt people in my life, and that's just something I'm going to have to live with. You eat that guilt. You live with it. You own it. You own it for life. In early June of this year, Anthony Bourdain hung himself, committing suicide. What do you do with regret? What do you do with guilt? Do you stuff it down? Do you try and keep busy enough in order to kind of push it to the side and try and forget it? Or maybe you're like Bourdain who said, you know, I'm just going to live with it. In our text today, there are ten brothers who have been living with guilt for 20 years. They hated their brother Joseph so much that they seriously contemplated murdering him, but in the end sold him into slavery and then dipped his robe in blood and lied to their father about his death. And in this chapter, we see how God providentially, meaning in his control, deals with guilt in people's life. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, 
He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves down before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, my servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, no, we are your servants. We are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one who is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this land unless the youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put all of them together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest of you go and carry grain for the famine of your household, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw his distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now here comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. When they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed... And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. It is here in the mouth of the sack. At this their hearts failed, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Then they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and told us that we were spies in the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of a father, one who is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. 
Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine for your household, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brothers to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to the father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring, back to, bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs and sorrow to Sheol. Father God, you preserve these words for a purpose. Now use me. Speak through me to your people, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a tendency to classify all guilt as bad guilt. All guilt is bad. And to the point that Many people feel it's even unchristian. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, a believer should never experience any guilt whatsoever. That's not true. It's not true. Sure, there's guilt that is unhealthy. Sure, there is guilt that that actually borders and maybe sometimes bleeds into sinfulness. Guilt over sin that we have confessed and repented of and that we're guaranteed, that we're forgiven of. There's also a bad guilt that I kind of term penance guilt, if you know this. Where a person is, takes on guilt and actually keeps guilt because they think in some way, because they're feeling this bad, that it is in some way paying for the sin that they have done. Have you known people like this? And then there's that courtroom scene type of guilt that we talked about last week where Satan, you fix your eyes on Satan and he just keeps telling you and accusing you and reminding you of the sin in your life when in fact we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That is bad guilt. There's probably other categories of bad guilt, but there is good guilt. There is a guilt that is biblical. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when Paul is writing a letter back to the Corinthians and he's referring to another letter that he wrote, probably a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians that we no longer have. And he tells them some hard truths in that letter that we don't have. And he writes this in, his, in what we call 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes, Even if I caused you sorrow, it can also be translated grief, could also be thought of as guilt. 
If I caused you sorrow in my letter, I do not regret it. Because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, worldly grief, worldly guilt brings death. What Paul is saying here is that sorrow is good. That grief over some sin is good. And it's good because it is a pathway back into a relationship with God. And that's the pathway I want to walk with you down this morning as we look at chapter 42. That pathway back into God, a relationship with God through good guilt. And the first way we see good guilt being used here is that it reminds us of our sin. Good guilt reminds us of our sin. If you look at verses 1 through 5 of our text this morning, that, that's really one self-contained scene in which the brothers and their father Jacob have an interaction. There's been seven years of plenty, and now we're into the first couple years of famine that, that Joseph had predicted of uh, Pharaoh's dream. And that famine wasn't localized. It was, it was widespread. We don't know how widespread, but it's certainly up into Canaan. And envelops the whole known world. And a couple years into that famine, Jacob's, Jacob looks around and sees his sons are actually doing nothing. He says, why are you looking at each other like this? In other words, please do something about this. We're dying. Jacob sees his sons are doing nothing about the situation. He sends them down into Egypt, but not all of them. Our text in verse 4 lets us know that he keeps one back, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. What we know from this is that Jacob is still playing favorites, right? He's still playing favorites. Rachel was his favorite wife. And Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph, he lost. So he transfers that favoritism to the next son, Benjamin. Now, just pause for a minute and reread verse 4. And how would you react if you were one of the ten brothers? Here's your father who says, you guys go down into Egypt but I'm going to keep Benjamin back because harm might come to him. How does that sound to you? You know, you guys are kind of expendable, but not Benjamin. You guys can die, but not Benjamin. Think of how that played in their minds, reminding them of the favorite Joseph. There was another one. He had favored status. It would remind them of Joseph that when, when they were hard at work back in chapter 37, Joseph got to stay home. Didn't have to work. It would remind him of 
their attitude maybe towards Joseph that maybe had been transferred. We're not taught, we're not told in scripture, but had been transferred to Benjamin, but certainly it would remind them of their feelings of bitterness and resentment and hatred of their brother Joseph to the point of murder. It would certainly remind them of the scene of him in the pit that we learn here. They had heard his cries from the pit. Imagine that. Your own brother. And then selling him and forgetting about him for 20 years into slavery. First thing good guilt does is to remind you of your sin. That's good. That's good to be reminded of your sin. Because so often we don't even notice when we sin. On March 18, 1937, a spark ignited a cloud of natural gas that had accumulated in the basement of a Texas school. The resulting blast killed 293 people, mostly children. The explosion happened because the local school board, wanting to save money because of the Great Depression, was siphoning natural gas from a neighboring oil company's pipeline to fuel the furnace. The leak inside the school filled the building with gas, which no one noticed until it was ignited. question that comes to our minds, how did they not notice the smell of natural gas? Answer, because natural gas has no odor. One of the good things that came out of this, if you can say that, is that a regulation requiring companies to add that odor that we all know of, of sulfur, to natural gas. The distinctive smell is now so familiar that we often forget natural gas in its natural state does not smell at all. Like natural gas, sin does not intrinsically have an odor to us. It does not intrinsically have an odor to us. Oh, sure, okay. Maybe the big ones, right? Yeah. And you're saying, come on, pastor. Yeah, the big ones. But think about Leviticus chapter 5. God gives them a sacrifice for unknown sins. Because he knows that we sin so many times and we don't even know it. We don't even, we don't even recognize it. The fact is, much of our sin, that which is egregious to God, we don't even notice. I mean, think about this for a second. When we come to the communion table and there's that time when we can remember and confess our sins, just be honest with yourself for a second. How many sins do you get into before you go, that's it? Two? Three? Four? Most of our sin, we're just not aware of. This is why recognizing your sin is actually at the first mark of, of true regeneration of, of true conversion. You know, all of a sudden, you give your life to the Lord, the Spirit indwells you, and all of a sudden, you realize 
my mouth is foul. I had no idea. You realize that your, your temper is out of control. You realize that your lifestyle is foul. Because all of a sudden, you smell that foul odor of sin. Actually, it's the mark of a true Christian along the way in sanctification, isn't it? It's a mark when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to sin that we never knew was sin. Have you had this experience in your 5, 10, 20, 25, 50 years of being a Christian where you're going along and all of a sudden you realize through either a brother or sister speaking into your life or the word of God or maybe just an act of the Spirit itself in your heart where you go, that's sin. I've been treating this person like dirt. I didn't even know it. All of a sudden, you smell the foul odor of pride or bitterness or greed. Nobody really struggles with greed, right? Envy. The foul odor of a desire to gossip. A desire to hear it. And a desire to pass it on. Or a wandering eyes or a judgmental nature. See, good guilt acts in a believer's life like that foul smell. It makes us stop and go, something's wrong. But it's not just enough to be reminded of our sin. Good guilt does that, but it does much more. There's another step that good guilt leads us to, and that is we need to be reminded of our sin, but we also need our conscience awakened, and good guilt does that. Good guilt awakens our conscience. So the ten, ma- ten brothers arrive in Egypt and make their way before Joseph in our chapter, the second in command in charge of distributing all the food. And in verses 7 and 8, we, we are told twice, interestingly enough, because the Lord, the Lord wants us to recognize this, that he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. After all, it had been 20 years, right? But still, 20 years a person kind of looks like a person. But imagine coming before your brother who you haven't seen in 20 years, who was a teenager, and now he is a full-blown man. He has a different voice, a different height, a different dress. He speaks a different language. We notice a little later on that he was speaking to them through an interpreter, right? Even a different name, they're calling him this name, no longer Joseph, but Zaphonath Paneah. Lord Zaphonath, Lord Zaphonath. They have no clue that this is their brother, but Joseph knows exactly who they are. And as they bow down before him, his mind clicks back to those dreams in chapter 37, right? The two dreams. The first dream is being fulfilled right here. Those, those grain sheaves are bowing down to him. But Joseph does not gloat. Boy, that would be a temptation, wouldn't it? Right there. It's sweet. It's juicy. He could say, remember the dreams. And almost instantly they'd get it. But he doesn't. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't... He never 
Neither does he want that to get even with them. You don't see that in the text. And that would be so easy to do. In his rough treatment with them, throughout this, the, these verses, is not out of anger either. I mean, we see his tender heart towards them in verse 24, don't we? Where he actually has to leave the room and he breaks down weeping. We see his heart. God wants us to see his heart there. He's not treating them roughly because he, he's getting back at them. No, 20 years of difficulty had not hardened Joseph's heart. I think we can see that as we've walked through these scriptures together. But his heart has been softened. His heart has not become bitter. Joseph's dungeons have has changed him. And he wanted to know, and here's the key, he wanted to know, were his brothers the same or were they changed? Are they the same calloused, bitter, angry, self-seeking, selfish brothers that he remembers? And that's why he treats them the way he does. It's a test. So Joseph tests his brothers and he applies pressure to see if their, if their hearts, what their hearts are truly like. He puts pressure in a bunch of different ways, but pressure reveals things, doesn't it? It's in times of pressure that your true heart is revealed. One of the reasons that we, the scripture says that elders should be looked at over time is because they need to be tested. There needs to be pressure put on elders' life to see what their real character is like. The, the candidating elders and I are going through a book and we're looking at the three qualities of an elder. An elder has to be competent. An elder has to be compatible. And an elder has to have character. He has to be competent with the word of God. He has to be compatible with the ministry that he, he's being called to. But he has to have character. And character is tested in pressure. It's not tested on, on, the, on the heights. Your character is tested in the depths. Good character can be faked when things are good. But what about after an exhausting day? What about after an emotionally draining ministry situation? What about after a fight with your spouse? What's your character like? What about after a bad congregational meeting? What about when your job gets difficult? True elders' character is tested under pressures like those. And so is every believer's character. Your character comes out when the sponge of your heart is pressed down upon. And Joseph knows this, so in order to see their heart, he applies pressure. He talks roughly to them, verse 7. He accuses them four times, did you notice that, of being spies? Which is a capital offense, and they're dead. He demands that the whole family come to Egypt. Puts amazing pressure on them to bring Benjamin down, doesn't he? He puts them in prison for three days. He puts them in the dungeon 
He says, I know what that pressure is like. Gives you a lot of time to think. And before he lets them leave in verse 24, he literally takes Simeon and chains him in front of the brothers and says, you guys can go. He stays. If you don't come back, he dies. All designed to apply pressure in order to awaken their conscience. And we see their conscience being awakened in verses 21, 22, and 23. You can see them right there. It says, they turned to each other and they said, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And the Reuben, the other brother, says, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? He calls it sin. But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. I think there are three ways in which their conscience is being awakened right here. First of all, they realize that they had sinned. They realize it's a sin what they did to Joseph. Good guilt leads to a reaction like smelling sulfur. Makes you want to turn away. Makes you realize something is wrong. In spiritual terms, your conscience is awakened. And you see sin, that sin, for what it actually is. And the brothers did. Perhaps the first time in 20 years they smell that foul odor of what they did. That's why they claim we are guilty concerning our father. Reuben says, we have sinned against the boy. Their conscience is awakened to the sin that they did, and they feel guilty over it. Secondly, good guilt leads to a healthy fear. So good guilt not only leads to realizing your sin, but it it leads to a, a healthy fear. We see this in verses 26 and following. Joseph not only applied pressure in his treatment in prison, but he applied the treatment of fear to them. Joseph sends them on their way, but look what he did. He puts their money back in their sacks. Now you could say that's just a brotherly, generous act. I think there's more to it than that. Both in verse 28, when they find it, and verse 35, when, when they all find their money in their sack, what does the scripture say? Their heart sank. They were afraid. Their hearts trembled. Why? Because they know that they're going to be accused of stealing this grain. They didn't pay for it. When they get back there, they're going to be killed. This teaches us that good guilt creates a healthy fear, a healthy fear of the Lord. Good guilt, let me say this as clearly as possible, good guilt creates a healthy fear of God. A healthy fear of God. There's so much scripture about fear of the Lord, isn't there? It's the beginning of wisdom. It leads to life. It's better than great treasure. Now, we don't have time to exegete the whole what the fear of the Lord is. But I will say this. At the very least, at the very least, it contains real fear. Yes, it, re- it contains reverence and awe and respect and wonder, all those other things too that are very palatable for us, right? I can deal with reverence. 
I, I can, I can, I'm, I'm with you, Pastor, in awe and respect. But fear? Yeah. Fear. Those are all bundled up in what it means to fear the Lord. Many years ago, the king of Hungary found himself miserable over his sin. He was a believer, and the king had gotten a glimpse of his guilt before God and the way he'd been living. So he sent for his brother, and he confessed to his brother that he's a sinner and that, that he was fearful. His brother, the prince, or his, his son, the prince, only laughed at him. In those days, it was customary if an executioner sounded a trumpet before a man's door, it was a signal that he was to be led for execution. So, the king sent the executioner in the dead of night to blow the trumpet before the prince's door. The prince awoke and realized with terror what was happening. He was quickly dressed and he was dragged before the king by the executioner into the king's presence. In agony of terror, he fell on his knees before his brother and begged to know how he had offended him. My prince, answered the king, if the sight of a human executioner is so terrible to you, shall not I, having heinously offended God, fear to be brought before the judgment seat of Christ? Brothers and sisters, Fear of God contains real fear. Jonathan Edwards preached on that verse in chapter 10 of Hebrews. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And it started the first great awakening. That's the type of fear that Jacob and his brothers have right now. And that leads to what Reuben realizes in verse 22, that good guilt also realizes that there's a reckoning to come. Reuben tells his brothers in earshot of Joseph, there is a reckoning for the blood of Joseph. They realize that what they did those many years ago demands a reckoning. And that's also what good guilt does. It awakens us to the fact that we will stand before God and give an account for every word and deed. I tell you that as your pastor, and I share this with the elders all the time, and I share this with other pastors all the time. And ch- chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 17, tells us that elders will give an account for the sheep that God has given them. And that's terrifying. Good guilt leads to the fact that there will be a reckoning. And that leads to action. And that's the last thing. At least it should. All those things should lead to action. The pressure and fear of Joseph demanding that Benjamin be brought to Egypt leads Reuben to suggest an action in verse 37. We have to take Benjamin back. We have to take him back. We're dead. Or at least Simeon is dead if we don't come back, if we don't go back. And he offers strange collateral there, two sons. But Jacob refuses. 
He will not give up Benjamin. At the end of the chapter, we're left with the father saying, if he died, I don't know how I'd recover. Saying emphatically, no, I will not let my beloved son go. I will not put my beloved in harm's way. And we are left, like the brothers, with a cliffhanger. We're left knowing that the only way out is if Benjamin goes. There must be some action taken. They're dead unless the favorite son goes. The only way their guilt will be taken away is by Benjamin going to Egypt. Something must be done. The only way out of their death sentence is for the favorite child to go. Do you love scripture as much as I do? Is that awesome? That's awesome. See, it's not the brothers who are guilty. It's you and me. We're the ones that are guilty. We're the ones who have, have all like sheep have turned away, have gone to their own way. We're the ones that will say, my way, not your way. And there is a reckoning for our sins, like the brothers before Joseph. You and I will all appear before the Lord and give an account, whether good or bad, it says in 1 Corinthians. And that because of that, action needs to be taken. Guilt leads to action. Sometimes we go, you know what the action is? I'm going to try to do better. Sometimes that guilt leads us to, you know what? I'm going to give more money. You know, sometimes it leads to, I'm going to do my best and hope in the end the scales tip in the good direction and not the bad. It leads to a lot of different directions, a lot of different actions. But Scripture says that it's not your action that's going to save you, but God's. That's the action that needs to be taken is for the father to let his favorite son go. Our chapter ends with that cliffhanger of Jacob's resistance to let his son go so that we will be yelling in our minds, Let your favorite son go. That's exactly what God the Father did in Jesus Christ. He loved us so much that he let his favorite son go. He let his beloved go. Knowing, intentionally putting him in harm's way. Intentionally. Knowing that it's not Simeon who was going to be bound, but his son was going to be bound. That it's not Simeon who was going to die, but Jesus was going to die in my place and in your place if you're a Christian. It wasn't Benjamin who went, it was Jesus. That's what this chapter is all about. It's about the gospel, it's about a father letting his son go. Praise God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, for the comfort that it brings, and for the action that it stirs us to. In Jesus' name, amen.